0: Uh, hello everybody, I'm Michelle, I'm really glad that you came to Chapters in Chad book club. Today we're talking about Brandy Morris, our voice of fire, and I'd like to start off by acknowledging that we're on Nitsitapi lands. Uh, these lands have been taken care of by the Blackfoot forever. They've had treaty with different folks, including the Dene for uh, forever. And that's why there was a small bit of Dene here when Treaty 7 was signed in 1877. So I want to start by acknowledging the Blackfoot Confederacy, the uh, Bagani, Siksika, Nai, and south of the border, the Blackfeet Nation. And then in 1877, uh, Sutina Dene, as well as uh, Stony Nakoda, signed treaty with the Crown, making us all treaty partners. So that if you are a non-Indigenous person, the treaty was signed on your behalf and you are a treaty partner with legal obligations to honor those treaties. I always acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. And uh, yeah, let's get started. So um, today in Calgary, in Malkinstas, it's uh, it's stupidly hot. It's uh, 32, feels like it's 40 in this room that I'm in. Um, my brother's taking out my basement right now. So normally I'd be nice and cool, have this wet cloth on me, but I don't know how long it's going to stay wet. <laughs> so maybe we'll do a little round of introduction so that everyone can get to know each other. But in order to create a safe space, um, I, I will happily pause the recording for anybody throughout this entire session. Just let me know. And then, uh, yeah, and that will go on my podcast for folks who missed our, our book club, or just kind of want to listen in and, uh, and didn't get a chance to read it. So um, I am going to open this up a bit. I'm just trying to figure out who's first. I'll bet you it's Carol. Carol, we'll go Carol, Kat, um, Paul, Shelley, and then Siri. And I'll uh, pause it for Siri.
1: Thank you, Michelle. Um, I'm Carol. I live on uh, Native land. It's uh, Treaty 7. And it's um, my privilege to be part of this um, uh, book club. And it's a continual learning process. And Michelle, I love those earrings. I love that work. I had to say it.
2: Hi, I'm Kat. I am a white settler, born on Treaty 1 territory, currently residing on Treaty 7 here. Um, so, I am a treaty partner, I acknowledge that, and I work to be a good one. Um, and my pronouns are she, her, they, them. Um, I am always grateful to be here and to learn from you all.
3: Good evening, everyone. My name is Paul. I'm a white settler in Western Michigan. It's the land of the Ottawa people. Thank you again for the opportunity to join you. Um, If I get a chance this evening, I wanted to tell you about my last weekend trip up to Wawa country um, in Ontario and the red dresses that we saw hanging on, on the trees and the fences. Thank you.
4: I'm Shelly. I am a settler who has been all her life on Treaty 7. Um, I also have, um, yeah, I think that's about enough for (laughs) today.
0: Welcome, Rosemary, we were just doing some introductions for folks who um, may not know each other, so I'll just invite you to um, introduce yourself in your way. Okay,
5: am I muted? Okay, you can hear me. Okay, so I'm Rosemary, I'm a white settler of European ancestry, um, born and raised on the traditional lands of the Onondaga Nation in upstate New York, and I've lived here in Mokinstads on Treaty 7 land for over 45 years now. And I've been with the book club almost, not since the beginning, but almost since the beginning. And I really appreciate it. It's made a big difference in terms of understanding, not just reading the books, but listening to Michelle and everyone else in the group. So thank you.
0: I'm so grateful for all of you. It is ridiculously hot in Calgary. There's a million things I'm sure all of you would rather be doing so I'm just really honored to hang out with you all and I, I said this at the reconciliation action group uh, get together that, uh, you know, it, it's like chosen family. So just happy to, you know, be with people who want to talk about these things so. Um, so our selection for today Brandy Morin's, our voice of fire a memoir of a warrior rising. Uh, Brandy Morin is an internationally recognized French Cree Iroquois journalist known for her clear-eyed and empathetic reporting on Indigenous oppression in North America. As a survivor of missing and murdered Indigenous women girls crisis, she uses her voice to shed light on and seek justice for those who have not survived uh, the rampant violence. Our voice of fire moves through Morin's years as a foster kid and runaway who fell victim to predatory men and an oppressive system to her career as an internationally acclaimed journalist, chronicling her journey to overcome enormous adversity and find her purpose and her power through writing. Morin's compelling, honest story is full of heart and faith and driven by a purifying fire of the pursuit of justice. And um, yeah, a beautiful book. So I love this artwork that uh, she has a little write up in the back about uh well she has some acknowledgments and um talks about the artwork here the painting represents a woman singing her new song uh before she receives a new song she provides a tobacco offering and prayer then ceremony begins which takes place in a quiet still peaceful solitude in taking the time to sit in solitude she renews her capacity to see hear feel and receive what the creator sends to her when the woman has completed her seeking and senti- sensing, she receives her song. With the songs comes a uh, drumbeat, rhythm, words and instructions for the song's purpose, whether it be for healing, war or celebration. This image is the first time she is singing the song, a solo that has been gifted to her by creator. And the person who wrote that is Sheref, uh, Marsden who draws on her Anishinaabe roots and knowledge of woodland art to create a unique work of diverse arts. This includes paintings at large and small scales, jewellery and beadwork. She is known for her bent wood box titled to honor our Indigenous veterans held in a collection of the Vancouver Museum. She is a graduate of Vancouver's Northwest uh, Coast Jewelry Arts Program under established artist uh, Hyda Haida and something else artist Dan Wallace Marsden has also worked with artists uh Richard anyway they live they live in uh, the interior of BC and where they practice and teach so that's a little bit about the art in front as well so um yeah in our book club we generally have indigenous people speak first I don't see anybody who identifies as indigenous other than I do so I guess um I did read the book despite, uh, for folks who don't know, my mother-in-law passed away. So um, I didn't think I was gonna read this book, but it was a super easy, quick read. So it was easy for me to um, polish it off. And uh, I just polished it off a couple hours ago, actually. And, um, and I, I thought it's important uh, as somebody who claims to be a liberal and someone who uh, works with the Liberal Party of Canada, that I read page 193 where she was talking in this section about a pipeline and the pipeline how it was affecting her also in Texas. So anyway I'm just going to read this little bit. Um, it wasn't just paranoia there was a lot of money at stake and many powerful people who did not want this story out. The pipeline is now owned by the Canadian government. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau bought it in 2018 after Kinder Morgan pulled the plug due to uncertainty. This state-owned multi-billion dollar pipeline has a lot of powerful stakeholders. Although Justin Trudeau has claimed that his number one priority is reconciliation with Indigenous Peoples in Canada, his actions have proved otherwise when it comes to upholding Indigenous rights. He has demonstrated time and time again that he advances reconciliation only on his terms, when, only when it suits him. He still allows Indigenous peoples to be forcibly removed from their lands. Such was the case with the Trans Mountain Development and the Wet'suwet'en crisis. He even brought in army troops to raid the Yous- Unist'ot'in Wet'suwet'en camps more than once to violently remove Indigenous opposition. To Justin Trudeau, I say this, respecting Indigenous rights has to happen on all fronts, not just when it makes a good photo opportunity or helps to get votes. And I thought it was important that I, out of all people, read that because I'm always retweeting and amplifying Justin Trudeau because I live in Calgary, Alberta and people believe in conspiracy theories and stupidity. So of course I share his message a lot, (laughs) but When it comes to indigenous issues obviously um you know i'm part of the indigenous people's commission and i I don't disagree obviously what she wrote and i think it's important that um you know it there's a difference between being a treaty partner and reconciliation and i hear justin talk all the time about reconciliation and i think she really kind of said when it's convenient and that's the problem treaty isn't about convenience Treaty is a legal document. And until there is true equity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, uh, one, there's no fulfillment of the treaty, right? And that, that needs to be seen as an obligation. Now, I honestly believe Justin Trudeau is the best Prime Minister we have seen up to this point in history uh, when it comes to working with Indigenous people. So, um, and with the deepest respect to Jagmeet Singh, not seeing a really good, you know, opposition or let's add to this or anything like that the conservatives are out to lunch so there's no even trying with those folks um so from my point of view it's not that she's wrong at all it's just that there is not a realization yet by the average Canadian about what treaty partnership is let alone you know what actual consent would be consultation and that needs to be a part of the reconciliation conversation a hundred percent and I don't think it's being fully realized by any capacity so um, I just thought it was important for me to to kind of point on that. Uh, The book overall uh, you know here is a, a in my opinion scared young woman with permanent childhood trauma thanks to systemic racism by the Canadian government with the apprehension system uh intergenerational trauma thanks to residential schools and um because she's part of the michelle band intergenerational trauma of governance and you know an an attempt to eliminate uh her identity along with all of those from the michelle band so um you know there's a lot to unpack when it comes to this book um and i i i think it's a really vulnerable a memoir that talks a lot about her failings and um, tries to end it a little more with some of her accomplishments. But uh, at the end of the day, this is a scared little girl who was raped multiple times by predatory monsters, and it sucks. <laughs> you know, this is the experience for a lot of Indigenous women. And, um, you know, because I'm going through a lot of the issues, I'm I'm dealing with uh, trauma from the past with, uh, with the death in the family. You know, just unpacking how much hate there is towards an indigenous woman and uh, under the guise of whatever and how much gaslighting and backstabbing and meanness comes from Canadian society and people who are supposed to be in a position of love and trust. So I, I just found it very interesting. I was reading this book while resurfacing a lot of the trauma of dealing with family members that clearly hate me. And, you know, for, for what? And I haven't gone through half of the trauma that she had to go through. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say that. Our trauma is different. We have different trauma. So um, I just, I know that she's, you know, really becoming an internationally known person now. And I'm really glad she was able to write a book. And I hope that uh, the next book we see from her will be basically focusing on uh, her work as opposed to, unfortunately, all the trauma she's had to endure. I think it's important, though, to include it and have a book on just that, because that's the experience of Indigenous women in Canada and and how non-Indigenous women and non-Indigenous people don't see that. Like, I I don't understand that. And uh, I I just want to invite Paul to, when he does have a chance to speak, maybe we'll go in the same order of uh, Carol, Kat, um, Paul, Rosemary, Uh, Shelly, and then I'll pause it for our last guest. And we'll just talk about it in that way. And um, yeah, and I invite you all to, you know, share what you'd like to share. Um, I just think it's really important that we also mention in this moment, that uh, we have two camps, Camp Mercedes, Camp Morgan, that are in Winnipeg right now trying to get the governments to work on searching these landfills. And because we're all in Calgary and most of you have been with me with the uh, Joey English, um, you know, death, pointing out again that Joey English is partly partly in the landfills here in Calgary. And the sooner we have a national action plan, the better, but we just, the irony to that is that even me saying those words is, I know if this was non-Indigenous people, there would be no question. There would be no, um, this would be done. But because it's Indigenous people, it hasn't been done. And that's, uh, if that doesn't show racism in Canada in 2023, I don't know what does, right? So, and, and Brandy speaks throughout this about how she feels this could have been her. And it could very well could be her, just like it could be any Indigenous woman in this country. Um, it could be me tomorrow. You know, that's just the reality. It could be my daughter. It could be, uh, so many Indigenous people who won't even acknowledge their indigeneity, who won't acknowledge racism, systemic racism. It could be anyone. So, yeah. So with that, I will pass it over to I said Carol Cat. Anyway, alphabetically. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Michelle. I I did read the book. And I think um, I agree with you. I should say first, my condolences to you. Um, The book is an easy read and she makes very complex things um, easy to understand. It was like this. It's like what I when I read these books, I feel like I'm on this emotional roller coaster. And I feel like it I feel like this what did she feel and there's this she's lived like 10 lives in in just this period of time that she's been on the earth I I think that um the trauma and the the she builds herself up and she starts to make progress and then an old pattern revisits and and then she just gets sick and she goes into hospital. And then all of the, the treatments associated with that I don't like I don't know that they're irrelevant. They are speak to me, ECT speaks to me as being um having no other options that the uh hospital would offer her, but she needed something else. She needed and it's basically a criticism of our um white ethnocentric health care she needed something else and it wasn't available to her but somehow she kind of gets herself through all of this and she does it through her her religion which she feels conflicted about and um she talks about her the difficulties in her relationships and the transgenerational patterns and losing her children and It's just incredible. And I think we've read so many of these books. If I was a researcher, and and I do do that, um, I would look and I would say, I have read all of these books. Every book is saying the same thing. This is a sample that is a significant sample. The data therefore has meaning. And I was thinking about this and I thought, what will it take before this data has full meaning? like you could read these books. I'm sure there's one 10 hundred printed in every province in Canada about by some some indigenous writer and we could if everybody read it, it it would the data would have meaning. Do you follow what I mean there?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah so I mean very complicated life but she makes it simple and and her journalism gets her through and She's given opportunity and then this opportunity falls away and then she builds herself. And I thought she just is in this process all the time, rebuilding, 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 and she doesn't get cut slack. And so my hope is that at this point in her life, things have leveled off for her. I don't know if they have, they seem to have, but I don't know.
0: Thanks Carol. Cat, would you like to unmute yourself?
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you for choosing this book as well. Um, I follow Brandy on Twitter, so it was really wonderful to read about her whole life story. I really appreciated her honesty and just putting it all out there, exactly what happened in a clear and poetic way, um, because she is a writer um, and a lovely one at that too. Um, Congratulations to her for being, uh, getting her own byline on BBC News. That was wonderful to see as well. Um, I was a wee bit surprised to read uh, she had worked with Danielle Smith. That was (laughs) kind of an interesting paragraph and where she relates like, oh, Danielle was this wonderful shining example of whatever. And then politics, of course, got in the way and um, proves exactly how, you know, people's real character comes out. Um, Anyway, I'm babbling. And uh, Carol said a lot of the things that I um, thought as well. So um, I will pass it along.
3: Good evening, everyone. I'm sorry, I didn't get a chance to read the book, but I wanted to attend tonight to uh, tell you about my experience with our family, our annual trip up to Wawa, Ontario. It's about five hours north of where we live. And um, I had a couple of questions. So we saw many dresses, red dresses, on the local fences and trees, some of which were full length, some of which were children's dresses. And I wanted to ask, um, they definitely got my family's attention. And they didn't know anything about them. So I wanted to ask if they have the same thing throughout the country, what the origin was, and if it's been effective.
0: Uh, well maybe I'll have everybody answer this in their way. Um, you know from my point of view as an Indigenous woman, we regularly ask people to put out red dresses to honor our missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. And so very rarely do settlers do a fucking thing. Like, seriously, it just, it makes me want to, I I talked about writing a book and I would basically call it Fuck You Canada because of how I feel about how Canada doesn't respond when we ask them, will you do X, Y, and Z? And they don't. So for somebody to put up those dresses, I I suspect it was Indigenous people who put it up, not settlers, because settlers very rarely do that and um, it, it is absolutely uh, a, a call across North America, right? Because the border was placed on us rather than <laughs> us acknowledging that border. So um, lots of folks in the states now are starting to use you're going to see the red red hand on the on the mouth as well as those red dresses to, you know showcase that, to showcase showcase our issue that we're trying to raise awareness to and um, the folks in the States are just starting to do that work as well. So um, my hope is, is that you know more Canadians start getting it and start showing that solidarity on days we ask them to put that up. I mean, they're pretty normal days, like May 5th is Red Dress Day. Um, Valentine's Day, we put them up uh, for October 4th, we put them up. Right, These dates are pretty standard for us. So and then, of course, when something happens like the search, the landfill where we ask people to put up the red dress, you know, I, I can drive around my neighborhood and not see a single red dress. I know that. So, you know, I could drive all around Calgary. I would have to really it's a it would be really hard to find a red dress, a single red dress put up anywhere. And a 100 percent of the time, it's going to be a native person who did put it up.
3: you're up, they're up on specific dates and if there's an incident. Yep.
2: Okay.
0: Yeah, I don't know if any of the settlers in the group have anything to add to that. You're welcome to.
2: They should be up 365, in my opinion. And I I endeavor to do it on special dates.
1: And I guess the thing is, is that, um, you seeing them and having a feeling about them and having an awareness of them is the entire point of it. And when we see that, we need to pay attention to it. We need to do a little bit of research, our own personal research around that and then what it means to us and what we would do. And so I, I'll buy a red dress.
3: I don't know if you can see it, but I took a couple of the pictures. You know, David. nice
0: yeah no i i appreciate you bringing that up and mentioning it because you know you know you're part of this book club so i i think it's really important that you know when you you were able to educate your family and others because yeah. you know we say it and then our settlers they can't even like reshare it right they, they won't even acknowledge it um so like the, our treaty partnership is so poor that's, like I said, if I was to write a book, it would be Fuck You, Canada. So,
3: <laughs> Well, it was very effective. Uh, the other question I had is, um we were in a camp, and there was a couple there, a couple of young women, one of whom is a policy analyst for the um, federal government of Canada. And I wish I had had an opportunity to speak more with her, but I didn't. But it sounded like um, her job is to write. She's in, she said she was an economics major and it's an economics position. I'm uh, talking about data collection uh, to collect the data for the federal government about things like um, the tar sands and oil and gas exploration and the pipelines. And I'm assuming that meant things like how many jobs are created, how many jobs are lost. But what I really wanted to ask her, but we are all kind of on vacation. My wife said, don't get involved in it. But um, whether any of you have had conversations or thought of in terms of policy or procedure of um, having conversations with the policy analysts, because that's a really powerful position. Um, They're the ones that are collecting the data that governments and businesses are making decisions with. And if the data only includes things like X number of jobs were created, or so-and-so got laid off, or here are the employment benefits, they're missing so much of the story. What about the data about people's lives and about health and about justice? And can you put a value on it? Is that even a, um, a kosher thing to say, is put a value on a life? Is there a way of valuing it in the policy analysis that is going to um, decision makers that brings it into a topic of conversation?
0: Yeah, actually, there's a lot of conversation happening about, you know, the economic losses with our deaths, etc. Even right now, there's a call out from the Stony Nation here in Treaty 7 to the federal government to help with the amount of deaths that are happening from the drug crisis. Um, Interesting, because my mother-in-law just died. It turns out every Canadian who pays into CPP has an opportunity if they paid in the CPP the last three years of their life, any amount they are eligible for a twenty five hundred dollar uh, death benefit, which, by the way, the cheapest uh, cremation that does not cover. Um, and I just found that interesting because I thought how many status natives probably never um, contribute to CPP in the last three years of their life, and would they be eligible for that uh, $2,500 etc. So anyway, the chief is asking for federal assistance for a uh, quarter million dollars to bury all of the people dying from the drug crisis. And, um, you know, it's interesting because we talk about immigration and the need to bring in newcomers and uh, to help our economy and to, you know, help with jobs that people uh, that employers want filled but can't find enough people for but they never go on reserve and they never offer jobs to Indigenous or people with disabilities. We have enough people here they just um, they they want that you know uneducated ignorant slave labor is what they really want. That's probably a better way to put it. So a new immigrant comes and works so hard to try to fit in and uh, yeah that's it's it's really deplorable but at the end of the day when you talk about economics like uh, we should actually do a book uh, on indigenous economics uh, i'll try to fit that into my 2024 uh so we can talk more about that uh with the deepest respect lots of reports on it lots of books on it just um a lack of giving a shit by policy analysts like the one you vacationed with frankly because uh In Canada and the US, it's still segregated. Uh, The concept of inclusion is not included in their university degree. Um, I have met, you know, some of the strongest PhDs in the country, and they know nothing about Indigenous people, absolutely nothing. Um, Even since reconciliation, so-called TRC report, and so-called changes in a lot of the educational uh, formats, like we're still we're actually seeing it worsen right now. We're seeing a lot of um, attacks on Indigenous people, our thoughts, our, our ideas, and, um, and a way to steal it. You know, uh, I personally have had interactions with people here at the University of Calgary that are deplorable. And, uh, you know, these are the people that other folks look up to. So. Yeah, I don't have a lot of faith in our policy analysts, and yes, I agree. That's why I'm part of the Indigenous Peoples Commission, because we're supposed to put forward policy for the Liberal Party of Canada, but they have very small para- paradigms that we're allowed to do that within. And their policy analysis, especially the ones hired by the government, um, are not allowed even to interact with folks like me. So it's, uh, that's the state of Canada, the U.S. in policy it's lack of will power from our leaders and and I shouldn't even say that it's the fascism that was imposed with colonialism is really what it is. Um, you know they don't want us here you talk about economics, sooner that we can be eliminated as a people, the sooner Canadians can feel good about stealing our resources and land right so
3: I don't know well, if anybody you. wants to add to I that. Thank you for letting me digress from the book itself. I just wanted to bring that up.
0: Yeah, I think it's important. And actually, while you brought it up, we should talk about, you know, I talk about um, imposed poverty uh, on Indigenous women. I, I really think this book kind of throughout it showed uh, the struggles that women, Indigenous women have with um, <laughs> with having a stable foundation to have a have a career first and foremost. Um, the lack of, you know, childcare that was available for her as a single mom. Um, the lack of mental health supports, even though she is a God-fearing Christian. You know, the lack of indigenous inclusion in her healing path and journey. Um, you know, which she found on her own, and she did that work by herself, as we are all forced to do. So, um, yeah, I hope that this book also kind of highlights that uh, economic oppression that the Canadian government has forced on Indigenous women. And um, I hope that this book kind of gives a light on that as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if anybody else wants to add to anything I'm saying and maybe answer anything Paul asked. Yeah, just unmute yourself, Carol. Sorry, I feel
1: like I'm talking a lot. But I just wanted to make mention to him about um, Stats Canada. Stats Canada collects data, and that data informs policy, but they do not collect data on Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have to collect the data before you can even do a policy. And both Michelle and I, we've both been on policy committees And we know the onerous task of trying to develop a policy, submit it, have it rejected, rewrite it, and over and over again to the point that it isn't even your policy anymore or your resolution. But the issue is Stats Canada. They do not collect data on Indigenous women because you're not part of a a certain part of the, you have to be a a certain number of the population.
0: they won't do it. Yeah. I know and we have a huge hole when it comes to data collection for Two Spirit for the same reason. So um yeah, very frustrating, very upsetting and uh, but done on purpose. Like let's not kid ourselves, right? Like this is what colonialism 101 is. So
4: I also was thinking that from what my experience is, is that the, a lot of the politicians and policy analysts are looking for confirmation bias. They aren't looking for something that that is brilliant what Michelle says and something that's needed. They're just looking for confirmation bias and they're just looking for what they want so that they can do what they want. So they find the, right, the they found the, the person on that topic that says what they want them to say instead of what needs to be said.
0: Yeah, and I think that's fair. And uh, I'm just going to pause it for one second. I think it is really important to bring up about the symbology. Um, so for the red handprint over someone's face, um, for a lot of us who are actually indigenous women, we don't even like it because it's um, you know, it it's uh very violent, and um, uh, we had a uh, one particular person who these are really graphic details and the last memories they have of one of their Indigenous uh, female loved ones included bloody handprints all over the crime scene and all over them and uh, so for a lot of Indigenous women and our families it's actually really triggering and yet it's become kind of a you know a lot of us who are actually doing vigils and and family members or or supporting family members. We see, you know, young natives trying to raise awareness by doing the red handprint on their social media, but they've never, you know, they've never been to a vigil, they've never talked to other family members. And um, it's really important that you kind of meet everybody where they're at. And for a lot of people, they don't wanna see red hand And I, I know I don't, um, but some people have chosen that's their, their symbology and you'll see it on some of our dresses and such. And uh, it is what it is. We, we have to work with what we got, but the red dress, um, you know, any red dress will do, uh, frankly. And uh, I should bring up the Manitoba premier. She wore a red dress pin on one of the news outlets here to talk about whatever the fuck she was gonna talk about. And I was so angered by it. I was like, I would happily take that assault charge. Um, She has no business wearing that pin when she herself are oppressing the very families looking for answers in the landfills that she refuses to search. Um, And I, I, I will bring up like Brandy Morin was kind of calling out to Justin Trudeau. And I know that the Liberal government claims they would happily work with all orders of government on that. But um, to kind of bring up Brandy's point, it's easy to say those things, but at the end of the day, it's not being done. So are they reaching out? Are they sending messages to the Premier? Are they talking to um, you know the local uh, municipality about getting that work done? Because it, it's easy to say in the media, in a tweet, oh my God, we are so in support of MMI MMIW and we would support those families. Oh, if you're not actually doing any work, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and I should, oh, I've been meaning to say this too. Uh, Josie Nippenak is a local Indigenous leader here. Uh, she was the executive director of Outon Healing Lodge for years, decades, until she retired. And um, her niece, Tanya Nippenak, is in those Winnipeg uh, landfills too, uh, just as Joey English is in the Calgary ones, right? So uh, we know there's even more bodies, actually. I just It happened a long time ago, so I don't know if that will ever be recoverable but the point is is that in canada seems to be socially acceptable to have schools with uh, little kids graves around it as well as our indigenous bodies and landfills and everybody's a-okay with it because the economy and the next quarter earnings you know inflation let's talk about those things instead of you know morals ethics (laughs) love, that kind of thing so yeah i hope that um kind of helps you because um I've actually had the Calgary police ask me the same thing about, you know, wearing orange shirts, pins, and uh, red dresses, and I, I think it's highly inappropriate. They've never apologized and they haven't done systemic changes for them to earn wearing those, frankly. Um, at least they've apologized to the 2SLGBTQ community uh, when before they put on these, like, rainbow, um, you know, pieces on their uniform, but Regardless, um, they've never apologized to us for their horrific crimes against us. And uh, and there's never been accountability. And I would argue until there is some sort of accountability, it would be inappropriate for a uh, for police force to be wearing orange shirts or um, red dresses and I said, I I said I want you to imagine one of our homeless people who are homeless literally because of systemic racism, because of intergenerational trauma, because of the sixty scoop, because of Indian residential schools and you're throwing them in jail wearing an orange shirt. Like, does that sound ridiculous? Cause it sounds ridiculous to me, right? Um, so like, I think there is a responsibility when uh, talking about symbology and, and these things and what they mean. That you know you are doing action and kind of back to our friend who uh, was talking there while we had it paused. You know, if you're not working on systemic changes, <laughs> you're not you're you're not part of the solution. You don't really, you shouldn't really be uh, wearing something when you're still oppressing the very people you claim to be in solidarity with. So, I don't know. Those are just my thoughts. I don't know if anybody else wants to chime in before we move on to. I think we'll go Rosemary, Shelley, and then we'll pause. Rosemary, would you like to talk about the book from your point of view? So I I know you've unpaused yourself, but I can't hear you.
5: Can you hear me now? I sure can. Yeah, it seems to be when I have my headphones in, people can't hear me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. We've had grandchildren and children moving in and out and doing things here. Um, I, I'm over halfway through the book. I find it absolutely compelling. Uh, I'm really struck by her capacity to make herself vulnerable to others, by sharing her story. And I think that's the point. That's that's why she did it. And and I think uh, she she's tried to break down those, that wall between herself as a reporter or someone who investigates and then the people she's interviewing and working with. You know, she's she's relating to them, right? As a human being, as opposed to being closed in. And somehow other people are the objects, and you question them, but you never share anything about yourself <clears throat> in your life. And, and I think the same goes for any researcher, you know, working with anyone. So I, I really admire her for that. And uh, I think, I, I mean, we talked about intergenerational trauma and the cycles, but I think this is one of the clearest. Uh, narratives in terms of just how that operates because she talked so much about her <coughs> her kokum and her mom and her dad and then herself and and she just keeps you know making the point and, and drawing the connections of, as you said from residential school to the trauma to, to how people treated each other and i mean it's it's very hard to hear about, you know, the, the, how on the, okay, what's hard is the the part of relationships between people that keep falling apart and becoming dysfunctional and perhaps violent and abusive. And yet, on the other hand, it's so clear that there was a lot of love in this book and in this family from the different generations. And like she said, her parents loved each other, but they just you know, because of all the baggage they brought, it just didn't work. And she found that in some of her own relationships. And even though, I mean, you know, her father, (coughs) his initial reaction to her sharing um, that, you know, she was learning this little "what sexy waxy game, right? From this other five-year-old. And without any discussion, he just creamed her, and it just shattered her. And she, for her, that was the starting point of the anger, the defiance, and, and of course, she's reacting to everything around her. And yet, <clears throat> later, I mean, it was her father and her mother who, over and over again, open their doors, drive miles to help her, and so that the love and the family connection and the support is so strong and so critical. Yeah. And I think people don't see that. They only see the dysfunction or the alcoholism, but not the strong bonds and the relationships. And and so I think that that then feeds into, <clears throat> you know, what we've been talking about, like the families of murdered and missing indigenous women. and, and the the whole thing, you know, like uh, the erasure of people as people, as human beings that happens with indigenous people, which you mentioned, Michelle. And, you know, another example I can remember when I first started working with um, the Luka Nation in terms of solidarity work. After the road was put in from Peace River to Little Buffalo and beyond for oil development, you know, then you've got a lot of traffic and cars easy access to alcohol from Peace River and there was a horrendous car accident where six young people died from the community. And do you know how their bodies were brought back to the community in garbage bags? You know, I mean, it's just like, so it's, it's ongoing, you know, the, the examples of what you've been talking about of, uh, the dehumanization of people on the part of uh, colonizers and other people. Um, so, but, but again, I, I just found that, and, and we've seen that before, where strong family relationships, regardless of the dysfunction, have helped people to come through. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm anxious to finish the book and to see where it's at and to echo Carol it's also such a, a clear example of, of how um, it's not like you have a magic cure one day, right? You, 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 you wake up and, oh, I'm, I'm fixed now. No, it's up and down and up and down. And she says herself, this, is, this isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. There are these swings back and forth. And there was another really important, there was a, a quote that really struck me. The, the, the reason, again, I'll I'll end with this, but why she wanted to talk about this, because she felt she's for her silence, she says silence is another form of violence, right? And it's how colonizers have erased us. So she's putting it all up there. So I I it's a very powerful book. That's it.
0: Thanks, Rosemary. Appreciate that. And I think we'll go, Shelly, and then I'll uh, I'll pause it for a minute.
4: So I finished the book. I I started it on last week and I read right through it because it's not easy material, but she made it easy, like digestible and easier to read. Um, like her, I've struggled with my mental health for a long time. Different, but still. St- struggled and when she talks about the airplane and how to conquer some of those fears and phobias it just kind of really hit home of having to conquer fears and phobias and just get it like just do it um and I'm wondering if they had just listened to her in the first place and looked at trauma instead of trying to just drug her Full of ant, antipsychotics and antidepressants, if that would have helped. In but that's the white, zero-centric. Let's just deal with what's in front of us and let's not look what's in the past. And even though that that could have big implications on what's going on today, they just they're just in the acute cycle of just getting people out of the hospital. So I thought the the um it was really touching, and even though my journey was different, it, it just reminded me of certain things. I, I don't have much to say that hasn't been said.
0: All right. Um, so. One of the things that I thought we could uh, go out with is this um, link that I put in the comment section. So I'm just going to share screen. I'm going to share sound and um, optimize for video and share this. All right, uh, let me get to where I need to now. So this was the link. And it started playing and I couldn't get it to shut up and pause. So I was like, oh, this is the a, a worst. So hopefully this will work really nice for us here. And uh, please don't hesitate to unmute yourself if there's an issue. It's right now just loading and loading. I had it up, but I just couldn't get it to shut up and pause. So otherwise I would have kept it up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's basically uh, her being interviewed so hopefully this will come there's still no sound yet
6: the reporter isn't supposed to be part of the story but for journalist brandy marin there came a time when it was painfully clear that the story she was reporting on could just as easily have been about her devastating loss abuse oppression but as her new memoir also reveals strength clarity and the bravery to seek justice it's called Our voice of fire a memoir of a warrior rising brandy marin is an internationally recognized french cree iroquois journalist and she joins us now in our studio it's so nice to meet you in person this book you know before we came on uh camera i said that there's a lot of things that you wrote about in here that are painful to talk about. So I just want you to know, you don't have to go there if you don't want to. Um, but you've worked for media outlets like APTN, The New York Times, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, National Geographic. Ma'am. Uh, you've shed light on so many people's stories through your reporting. so. Why did you decide to tell your own story in a memoir?
7: Yeah, so I've been uh, telling these stories, like you said, for many years. And yes, this is an intimate story and it's a devastating story. But when I'm out there, uh, you know, telling these stories, people are sharing those intimate details with me and they're sharing these truths with the world. And I thought, you know, with the platform that I have as a journalist, um, you know I can also share those truths and to give back to provide insight because uh, I think that a lot of times our people aren't humanitized uh, in the media and you know I wanted to give uh, you know a look into the life of a survivor such as myself because you know I have been very moved and impacted by this genocide of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and visiting the uh, home where Tina Fontaine was raised. Um, For those that are unfamiliar with Tina Fontaine, she was 15 years old and her body was found dumped in the Winnipeg Red River. And um, I could have been her Mm -hmm. and she could have been me she could have been you know a journalist for justice doing these big things and so i thought you know i i wanted to bring attention um you know with these platforms that i had
6: well you brought up um tina and in the book you write about that meeting and how difficult it was for you to hold um, your emotions back and i just want to read what you wrote in the book since you brought it up Um, you write tina died i survived tina died i survived i am her she is me. Um, I think it's safe to say that most of us would probably crawl into a fetal position, but you chose to use what happened to you as fuel. How were you able to do that?
7: Wow. (laughs) Um, I just, you know, had this sense of fighting inside of me, like fighting to get out of that darkness that I was raised in and around and I, I, I had this um, this warrior spirit um there was just always this spark that there was something better and so I found that through becoming a journalist through a love of writing through a love of people and through doing what I do uh, it coincided with my own healing from the different traumas that i experienced right so uh it was just uh it was a, it was a a blessing in in many ways
6: many parts of the book were hard to read and i'm sure they were very difficult for you to uh to write what was it like to revisit some of the most traumatic experiences and painful memories that you went through
7: so believe it or not revisiting and writing about my rape and escaping with my life, wasn't the hardest part. Because, was the hardest part? yeah, I mean, I, I've been in, you know, in a healing journey for many years and, and, and going through therapy and different things. The hardest part for me was going back to when I was completely broken and unable to take care of my children and neglecting my children and having my children taken from me. Revisiting when my daughter Faith, my firstborn, was four months old and neglecting her and the pain of revisiting how could I have done that. And I cried for days, you know, remembering and going through those parts and called my daughter Faith and, you know, apologized and had this kind of beautiful full circle conversation with her even though she doesn't remember any, anything, right? But those, that was the hardest for me. But I was also like so grateful because I was able to get my kids back. There's so many, uh, you know, of our children that are in the foster care system across this country and the families aren't supported to get their children back, you know? And so I I also felt, you know, very, very grateful.
6: I wanna talk about um, the foster system in the country in a little bit, but I wanted to just uh, have a follow-up on something that you just said, because in the book you were very, honest mm-hmm. um in the ways that you neglected your children i think for a lot of us we see ourselves in um which we, we try to see ourselves in a positive light but you were very honest um, about some of the things that you did was that did you worry about being judged or being misunderstood
7: i did um for a little bit i you know i have uh, worked very hard to be doing what I'm doing, and I did, you know, wonder would people be judging me or, you know, um, questioning, you know, my uh, capability or. Um, but it was so important to me to to be authentic, to share these truths because these truths are often just hidden away; they're brushed under the rug. We don't talk about them, and if they can't come to the surface, like I don't really think that the healing or the understanding can come about for so many people. Mm -hmm. And um, even, you know, when we talk about the intergenerational trauma or the impacts of things such as residential schools, like, our people didn't talk about them for years because it was too traumatic or you know, there was um, violence, uh, you know, that that came about, such as, you know, racism and discrimination. I feel it's so important to speak truthfully and honestly. And I know that, you know, it's helped other people. And when I have spoken, I have um, learned about others who have gone through things, those have very much helped me because then I think, man, if they could get through that, there's hope for me too
6: and, and cuz your children some of your children are older and i'm guessing they're able to i don't know if they've read the book mm-hmm. um, but is this maybe a way for you to have that conversation those painful conversations
7: absolutely they have read the book my oh, my son read it in a day which was like <laughs> pretty amazing and um, they've they've able you know they they've seen and experienced us going through some rough times growing up but they also seen their mother who never gave up their mother who kept striving who kept fighting and 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 that is breaking the cycle that is empowering for them and they're really proud of me for that so in the
6: book you talk about um (laughs) how stubborn you are and how like you have this fire and you are indeed a fighter and a warrior but as you wrote in the book you continue to battle the challenges rooted in cycles of addiction abuse and violence even when you became an accomplished reporter um, you write in the book I'm talking world changer, history maker, badass, mother <laughs> warrior stuff. But the question that plagued me was, how could I be doing so well in my professional life but epically failing in my
7: personal life? Do you have an answer to that question? Like I said, this uh, you know this journey of being successful as a journalist and you know um, earning these accolades and such like that, at the same time, I was on a hardcore inner journey of healing and as my career was moving up and up, my healing necessarily wasn't happening at the same rate and it was frustrating for me because I thought, oh, it's all gonna be good once, this, once I get here and once this happens. But for me, I really believe that healing is a lifelong journey and um, I'm still, you know, going through uh, that process. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm still in counseling. I still need to do things. And, and even doing the work that I do. It's heavy, it's traumatic, you know, going into a lot of these situations. Dealing with, uh, you know, telling the stories of residential school survivors, or meeting with families whose, you know, daughters uh, and sisters have been murdered or missing, or you know, this is really hardcore stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a continual push to work through.
6: You mentioned the amount of uh, work that you do, but also the impacts on it of, Mm -hmm. you know, um, physically and emotionally, it impacts you. How do you find a way to process those things? Because your life has been threatened. Mm -hmm. And to move forward and tell these stories.
7: I just, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is prayer. I get through a lot of it, you know, by prayer and um, just, the, you know, this belief in what I'm doing, that it's right and that it's essential. Like, I believe that the work that I do is human rights work and that there are literally lives on the line. When I'm dealing with this stuff, you know, there's been times when I, I'm i on the road and I'm, and I'm so impacted that I'll have to take sleeping pills because I'm experiencing nightmares and you know, different things, but I get a release somewhat when the stories are out there, when the stories are published or when they're broadcast and when they're, you know, given to the world. So, um, you know, I I just deal with it with prayer, with, uh, you know, talking to elders that I know um, and just working through it as I go. Uh, you write about uh, intergenerational
6: trauma that you experienced, yet you express so much love and empathy mm. toward your mother and your family. How does your childhood and home life affect your approach to parenting your own children?
7: Oh wow! <laughs> well, it's it's been hard. It's been um, a lot of you know undoing, and um, that that's a that's a really tough question. It's different now. I have a four-year-old now, and there's a large gap between her and my older kids. And back then, when I was raising my older kids, I was really in survival mode a lot, and they experienced a lot of like me having bouts of depression, or, you know, um, you know, I would you know yell and things like that. And now that I have a four-year-old, um, it's so much different. I'm not in survival mode, and. I am more healed and I'm able to give to her that love and what she needs. It's not to say that I didn't give that to my other children, it was a different experience, but it was, uh, you know, I really didn't have a lot to pull from and, Again, it was a creating and and learning as I went.
6: One of my favorite chapters of the book is when you write about your cocoon um, and you write about the struggles she went through and you also write about the struggles that your parents went through. And even though you had a lot of challenges with your parents, you have that empathy, Mm -hmm. you have that love and that protection. Mm. Where do you find the peace to forgive in the ways that they didn't show up for you as parents?
7: Oh, wow. You know, there was a lot of, like, chaos, you know, growing up. Um, but there was a lot of love. You know, we were rooted in that love. You know, I may have felt lost. I may there may have you know been times where I felt afraid or I wasn't at home and I was going you know back and forth at the foster care system. But we had those deep bonds of love. And I mean, I, I just I can't hold on to any of that poison mm-hmm. of animosity or unforgiveness. I did go through that through processing the anger, not really knowing, you know, what it was. It was just reacting to those environments. But um, it's because I understand, uh, and I give, you know grace for that. they didn't have the tools. They were working with what they had you know, to do the best that they could do. You know, their intention wasn't to, to hate or to harm. They, they worked with what they had. And so I think that's where, you know, I, I, I draw from to, you know, to forgive and to love.
6: And you also demonstrate that in your storytelling, your mission has been to amplify the voices of indigenous peoples, especially survivors of gender-based violence. How do you reconcile the ideas of activism and, a, and journalistic objectivity in that space?
7: yeah so you know um i i didn't go to journalism school i had a passion for it and learned on the ground and kind of did this grassroots i didn't know that you know journalists aren't supposed to you know connect with the people necessarily that they're telling these stories Um, it was always about building relationships for me and you know getting um, wholly involved with these people, uh, in order to draw these stories out, I think that the way that many storytellers go about, um, you know, this this job, has to change, especially in marginalized or, or, or indigenous communities. There's so much harm that's been done there, and we have to start from the ground up. We have to start with, um, you know, um, breaking down these barriers and, and become authentic, like. You can have objectivity, but these are human beings that we're dealing with. I uh, take these stories extremely seriously, and I am invested in them. And I'm invested and care about these people and these places. It doesn't mean that I don't include the facts and do well, you know, in what I do. Your journey, uh, your journey,
6: your own journey of reconnection to your indigenous bloodlines and culture evolved over time. I mean, the first mm-hmm. few pages of the book, just the way you wrote it, just makes you just stop. You feel the tears coming down your face because you didn't even know where you came from. Mm-hmm. Um, why is there a lack of awareness among some children and grandchildren of residential school survivors of who they are and where they mm-hmm. come from?
7: I mean, that, that is a part of that disconnect, right? And it was the, the goal of a simulation to,, um, you know, uh, change our identities and to, um, you know snuff all of that out. And so you have these gaps in the generations. And like I knew what it was to be indigenous, but I only knew it at a certain level. I didn't knew it, know it. Um, I didn't know that our family, came from a place and had been displaced, you know, not far from where I grew up. I didn't know the deep roots and the beauty and the richness of who we are. And um, again, just like people didn't talk about residential schools, this, this just, it was, for, it was forgotten. People didn't talk, it, the people were punished.
6: And when you say punished, uh, I just want to interject because you found the writings of your cocoon and she was talking about this, um, this stress that she had um, after she passed on
7: she was going to hell because of who she was. Mm-hmm. So this stuff is really deeply ingrained. Oh, absolutely. That's what, you know, that's what they did. The, you know, the, the churches uh, in these schools, you know, they drilled into the children that they were savages. And, um, you know, that if they didn't renounce their, their, their Indian heritage, that they would be damned to hell. And so this was a very real thing. Like even my own cookum, like she, um, she was a devout Catholic till she died, and it was ingrained into her. Even though she was proud, she was proud Native woman. It was this deeply ingrained, you know, ingrained into her till the end. She had this worry. Mm-hmm.
6: Um, You lived in and out of foster homes from the age of six until you were 18 years old. According to Statistics Canada, more than half of the children in Canadian foster homes are Indigenous, despite them making up less than 8% of the country's child population. What does that say about where Canada is when we do talk about reconciliation?
7: It says that we're in a mess. It's plain and simple, we're we're in a mess, and this is the fallout. This is the fallout of all of that violence from the colonial agenda to the residential school to the 60s scoop to where we are now.
6: Does it break your heart? Because you were in those spaces, Mm. and some of the things that you experienced at such a young age, 13, locked away for six months, the things that you experience through there,
7: um, and people don't know about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course it does, and there's there's kids that are dying, in, even in these systems now in the foster care system, because we're and we're so overrepresented, and there and, and our many of our people are you know lost. But um, things are changing. I do see hope. Uh, we are in a mess. But that trajectory is, you know, starting to uh, change course, finally. (laughs) Well,
6: what role do you think journalism and storytelling play in truth and reconciliation?
7: Really huge, because the media has, um, you know, a major influence over, you know, um, societal perceptions and can help um, place pressure. Onto the different authorities and systems to help make change or just bring general awareness to help, you know, um, get rid of racism and discrimination and hate. And so, when our people aren't represented accurately or um, at all, then that is going to perpetuate a lot of this violence against our people, a lot of, you know, the racism and and the stereotyping and this and that. So it plays a huge role to get it right.
6: And when we talk about, um, I just want to go back to that question about objectivity and activism. When we talk about separating um, your lived experience from these kind of stories, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, do you think that that's a kind of a way to shut out certain people from covering certain stories?
7: I don't, I don't know because. Something that's really interesting, you know, sometimes people would say to me, well, you can't cover these stories because you're indigenous. And I would, I would say, well, why are you covering covering these mainstream stories? You're white. It's the same thing. They have that lived experience in in their own communities. Right, so for me, I, I don't, you know, I don't see it that way.
6: And when the Pope came to visit Canada um and give their apology to residential school survivors, uh, he to several major media outlets, you covered it. Yeah, do you see that how do how important was for you and the communities that you're representing for you to be able to do that in that moment?
7: Um, it was important. That was a difficult assignment. Um, just a lot of very mixed feelings about that whole experience. But I was like thankful. What? Well, I mean, it's really hard to take it seriously. It's hard to take it in. I mean, um, it's heavy as it is. You know, you know, following one of the most powerful men in the world, you know, around the country. I had gone to Rome as well. And, um, you know, wondering if if this is authentic and what will happen out of it, and and just dealing with the the heaviness of the survivors and everything. But I knew that it was historic, and I was thankful for that. I was thankful to be able to document and witness um, and experience these survivors that some of them had prayed for this to happen, you know, for years and years. So, you know, in that sense, yes. Well, you've been
6: reporting on missing and murdered indigenous, indigenous women and girls for many years now. Have you seen changes and progress being made?
7: No, not, not in this genocide that we're in, no. No, not at all. It's, we have the, you know, the um, the national inquiry that happened and, and their report that came out in 2019 our women are still being murdered and going missing at, like, alarming rates. In Vancouver lately, there's been multiple Indigenous women, even over the past year, that have been murdered. One is young, I think, was 13 years old. It's not slowing down, and I don't believe that um, enough's being done about it. You were one
6: in the book you say how you could have been one of those women and girls when you cover these stories and you see the lack of movement on the issue you think what
7: i just keep pushing (laughs) i just keep um doing what i do to to get these stories out there Um, It makes you more determined? It makes me more determined, absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't want to stop and, um, you know, I just uh, want to bring these faces to the forefront that maybe these stories and these people would reverberate in the hearts of other people that they would be moved to do something. Because, you know, I, I always say, people say that, oh, if they knew what was going on in the residential school system at the time, when these children were being stolen from their families, when they were being experimented on and abused, and even dying, that they would have done something. But I question that, because there's so many things that are happening right now, such as this genocide and other atrocities right now. And what are they doing?
6: In the book, you write that you're tired of being the hunted that you are going to become the hunter. And in the book, you also write about all these people that you take care of. How do you take care of yourself? Mm.
7: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's something that I'm learning <laughs> every, every, you know, as I go as well. Again, this work really drives me in everything that I do. I consider it a purpose. Um, again, I, I have a lot of prayer. I have people, uh, you know, supports that I get through um, and just take it step by step. And you were up for a huge award, mm-hmm. you received a huge award. Can you tell us that in our final moments? Absolutely. So I learned uh, recently that I won uh, one of the most prestigious awards in the world for journalism, an Edward R. Murrow Award, and it was actually for my series with Al Jazeera English on Missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, the highway of tears, and the correlations between the violence that industry bring, brings in. And I'm going in a week to go to New York City to accept that award. And the reason why this is like massive is because we've been fighting for these stories to get to the mainstream for so many years. And to get this top award is huge. That is our voices coming to the forefront. So I'm going to walk that red carpet.
6: <laughs> You're going to shine on yes, the red carpet. Yes, yeah. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> everything that you've experienced in this book, um, so many people can get from. You almost gave up so many, many, many mm. times, but you refused. You just kept moving forward. Congratulations on everything, and thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself with us tonight. We appreciate it.
7: Hi, hi. Thank you.
0: Right on. Stop share. Okay, we're back. Um, hope you all enjoyed that. I don't know if anybody wants to
4: comment on it at all. The reporter asked some really tough questions that i would I would think that are more for politicians, but she answered them really well.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks folks for coming tonight. It looks like we're kind of wrapped up here. So I appreciate you doing this book with us. And I I think the next one is 113 Pathways to Justice, the Government of Alberta. Uh, Look at the 94 Calls to Action. So I'm just gonna quickly double check that before I let you all go. Is it, yeah. Uh, So September 11th will be our next date and uh, this 113 Pathways to Justice is an open document. So um, it is accessible for everybody to read, which means I should probably get my butt in order and order that uh, peace and good for October 9th. I don't have a copy yet. So um, geez, I hope I, I better get on that right after this call. So. <laughs> Anyway, uh, thank you all for being on on tonight, uh, for listening to the interview. And I hope you enjoyed chatting about this book. It sounded like you all felt like it helped connect the dots of the, the issue of violence against Indigenous women. We've been really unpacking with the inquiry and with the TRC. So yeah, thanks everybody for coming.